Father, we are grateful for you giving us time out of our busy schedules to be here together. We look to you for the guidance of your spirit. We ask you for strength to give us alertness. Please help us as we consider your ways to see them a little bit more clearly, to comprehend them a little bit more deeply, and to worship you a little more truly as a result of the time we spend in your word. As always, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. Pray, Father, for others who may be on the road on their way. Please protect them as they come. We pray for those in our church who may be coming down ill and ask you to show them mercy and to preserve their health and not let them get seriously ill. Thank you, Father, for your care to things both large and small. Thank you that you know everything that's going on. We pray this with thanks in your Son's name. Amen. Okay. Tonight, we're going to push on in this first hour in the earthly works of Christ. If you didn't get them, get them during the next break. There's a new set of notes in the back. I don't think any of the notes that are on the table were ever handed out before, so I doubt that they're duplicates for any of you. Okay? All right. Let's talk about, and we're just going to survey this this quickly. In fact, a lot of the material that we're going to cover tonight, we're just going to hit quickly because it's familiar stuff, but I think it's important that we review it. Let's look at the ways that John the Baptist describes Christ. He's quite interesting. He called him Lord. That's the Greek word kurios. I think you all know that that word simply means master. It's like senor in Spanish. It doesn't necessarily mean God. It is often used to refer to God, but it's not a proof of divinity. But you put together all the things that John said, and you can see what his understanding of Christ was. He said he's one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He said he's one who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. Now that statement in itself seems to indicate that Christ is divine, because it's a statement that Christ, in a sense, has authority over the Holy Spirit, which is a radical concept. He said that Jesus was the one who would gather the wheat and destroy the chaff. Now, that's a figure of speech that describes what in theological terms? What would you call that? Somebody who would gather the wheat and destroy the chaff? Judgment, exactly. Okay? Again, judgment is a divine prerogative. It's not something that any human being has the right to do. He called him one who was preferred before me. And that's an interesting one, together with the next one, one who was before me. Now, what do we know about the infancy narrative of Christ? Who was conceived first? John the Baptist was. He's three, three months older. And yet he says, Jesus existed before me. So he is alluding to the pre-existence of Christ. He called him a man, interestingly. He called him the one upon whom the Holy Spirit descended. And he was talking about his baptism. He called him the Son of God. Okay? Now, again, as we've seen, this term, Son of God can be used to refer to what? Well, it can be used to refer to a man, okay? It's often used in the Old Testament to describe what? Angels, okay? But put together with all the other information here, I don't think John is using the term in that way. I think he really is referring to Christ's position as a member of the Trinity. He calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now in John 3.28, he doesn't actually call him the Messiah or the Christ, but if you look at John 3.28 and look at the context, he's implying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament. And here's a big one. He calls him the prophet like Moses. So let's take a look at Deuteronomy 18.15 to remind ourselves what that's about. 
Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now, who's speaking? Moses is. According to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see his great fire any more, lest I die. Now, when I read that, it almost seems like he's saying, you wouldn't listen to God the Father, but you will listen to this person, and this person will also speak as God. Can you see it? He says, you wouldn't listen to God the Father, but you will listen to this guy. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You remember how Jesus says over and over, particularly in the Gospel of John, that I only say what the Father sent me to say? Verse 19, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Okay? Now, at the time that Moses made this prediction, I don't think it was necessarily clear that he was talking about the Messiah. But you put that together with all this stuff, and you can see that John has a very, John the Baptist has a very high view of Christ, and there's lots of evidence in what he says that he understood him to, to be divine. Now, others also spoke of Christ at the time of his birth. An angel said he is the one who will save his people from their sins. The angel said you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angel Gabriel called him the son of the highest. Now that phrase, the highest, is a Jewish way of saying what? God. It's a Jewish way of saying God. <clears throat> when an angel says that, that's important. Gabriel called him the future holder of his father David's throne. This is a very important one. When we get to our discussion of eschatology and we talk about uh, the kingdom of God, these will be very important. He said he would be the never-ending ruler over Israel's land and people. Let's take a look at that one very quickly. In Luke chapter 1. Let's look at verses 32 and 33. Okay, the angel says... Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, if we were to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and look at the promises that God made to King David back then. That was at the time when David said, here I am living in this fancy palace, and the Ark of the Covenant is still in that old moth-eaten tent that we made 400 years ago. David says to Nathan, I want to build a temple for God. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan comes back and says, you can't do it because there's blood on your hands but God is going to build you a house. Okay? How many of you play poker? What's a house in poker? What are the four houses? The four houses or four suits. Okay. Now that term house gets into poker from the idea of a house being a dynasty. And when God said to David, I will make you a house, you're looking at me funny. Okay, when he, 
When he said, I will make you a house, it was a joke. God is, was saying to David, I'm going to make a dynasty for you. And he predicted that one day a descendant of David would come to the throne and he would reign over the nation of Israel. And from that point forward, there would always be a descendant of David reigning on the throne. Now, at the time that God said it, it was not clear that that would be accomplished by having this descendant of David be immortal and divine. The way that God said it, it left open the possibility that there would just be an unbroken succession of Davidic kings who would each beget the next one. But as history worked out and as prophecy worked out, what we discovered is that that was a prediction of the Messiah, the one Messiah, who would be eternal, who will one day reign on the throne of David over the people of Israel in the land of Israel. And that's what these two are looking at. Okay? In our next term, we will spend some time studying that whole concept in detail. The angelic host called him a savior. By the way, what does Jesus' name mean? It actually means Yahweh saves. Okay? Yesu is the Greek form of Yeshua or Joshua. Okay? Most words or many words from the Old Testament that end with a or Yah is the covenant name of God. Joshua means God saves. So Jesus' name means God saved. It's like every time that um, Abraham and Sarah called their son Isaac. Remember what his name was? His name meant laughter. Okay? Laughter, come in for dinner. It was a reminder of a whole bunch of things associated with his birth. When you say the name of Jesus, you're saying God is a Savior. And you know what's really funny? When people in the modern world say hallelujah, when something good happens, you know what they're saying? They're saying praise God, even though they don't know it. It's quite amusing. Okay. Angelic host called him Christ the Lord. Now, this is an interesting combination. That's the Messiah who is the Master. Okay? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means the anointed king. So this is the anointed king who is the master. Simeon called him the consolation of Israel. Why did Israel need consolation? Think about the status that Israel was in when Christ came. What was their status? Yeah, they were in bondage to the Romans, right? The Jews had been anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the one who would rescue them from the Romans. And when Simeon said this, he wasn't wrong. Okay, But he didn't understand, and neither did anybody else at that point, that Christ's ministry would be split into two parts, where he would come as Savior at his first coming and as ruling king at his second coming. Okay. Simeon called him the Lord's Christ. Paul. Um, that's the two eleven. Ah, okay, good. I'll correct that. I'll put a note right here. Okay, I will check on that. Um, Simeon called him your salvation, God's salvation. Do you find another error? Okay. There are always errors in these. There are errors in my notes, by the way. I discover them every time I look at them. I apologize. Simeon called him a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Where did he get that idea? From the book of Isaiah, right? He called him the glory of your, and he was speaking to God, the glory of God's people. Anna called him the one who would redeem Israel. Okay, all of these people, right at the time of Christ's birth, had a very high opinion of him, and it wasn't just opinion, was it? 
I believe they were divinely appointed as spokesmen and spokeswomen <coughs> to tell who this person was. We've got angels, we've got people. Um, they're saying a whole lot of things about it. It's quite interesting just to look at those. Now, let's briefly talk about the baptism of Jesus. Have you ever been baffled about the baptism of Jesus? It's a little strange, isn't it, Clayton? Uh, like, on the last subject, okay. I don't want to go back to sure. but like even the what the demons said about it. Okay, good, good. Later on in his ministry, yeah, they would call him the Holy One of God. They knew who he was. But interestingly, that knowledge was not coupled to a submission or reverence or a desire to obey or anything like that. They knew that Jesus was what to them? He was the enemy, right? Yeah, good observation. Okay, John the Baptist was puzzled when Jesus showed up to be baptized. He said, I have need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? Have you ever wondered about this? Now, Jesus would say something like, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. But you still say, how does it fulfill righteousness? Did Jesus have any sins of which to repent? Wasn't it just a submission to God? Well, okay. Um, You could probably argue that, but that one's a little tough. Um, Because, again, the purpose of baptism, at least as I understand, understand it, was a way for the people of Israel to say, I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I fall short of God's standards in my conduct, and that I'm in need of salvation. And it was also an expression, as I understand it, of their desire to meet the conditions necessary for Messiah to set up his kingdom. Was it also coupled with uh, the ritual purification, you know, as often they continue to be unclean, Okay. Yeah. There's there's no doubt that in baptism there is a concept of spiritual cleansing. I mean, I'm talking about the fact that the Jews, there was, you know, whenever they had to go through the process of becoming clean, part of that process was faith. In some cases. But the thing that we need to remember is that what John was doing off in the desert had absolutely nothing to do with Levitical sacrifices and the rules of the Levitical system and all. John was an outsider. He wasn't a priest. Well, he may have been a Levite, but he wasn't functioning as a priest. Okay? In fact, the Jewish leaders go to see him and, you know, hey, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? You know, he's doing something that has nothing to do with their system. Now, let me throw a few things up to suggest to you, and, and, and don't take my answer as you know, authoritative, but I've thought about this a lot, and I've read up on it some. I think Jesus was identifying with others who were eager to see God establish the Messianic kingdom. Now, John's message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I don't want us to get too far afield right now, but next term, when we study eschatology, I'm going to argue that that message means there are certain conditions laid out in the Old Testament which the nation of Israel must meet in order for God to establish the kingdom of Messiah over Israel. One of those conditions is for the nation to repent before God. And so when John said this, droves of people went out to be baptized and to say, here I am, I want in, you know, um, and in so doing, they were saying, we want the messianic kingdom to be established. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, and he said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was a prayer for the coming of the Davidic messianic kingdom. It seems like that would have left the wrong message. He was the 
Savior. And, and the reason is to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was baptized to identify. Well, okay. And, and that is exactly, that's exactly the question that I'm raising. Okay? The baptism of Jesus seems to give the wrong message. Okay? Now, think about it this way. The individual who came to be baptized, not Jesus, your average Israelite, was saying, I know that God has promised that Messiah will come. I'm ready to do my part in helping him to establish his kingdom. I confess and turn away from my sins, and I will strive by God's grace to obey his law. Okay, I think that's what the individual was saying. And I think that when Jesus was being baptized, it was a little bit like a presidential candidate going to vote for himself. Okay? Think of it in those terms. Now, it's not about a vote. But he was saying something like this. You who are coming to God to express your repentance and I are alike in that we both want to see the messianic kingdom being set up. This is what people say when they say that Jesus wanted to identify with them. He's saying, we are part of the same, this is going to sound too social gospel or something, we're part of the same cause, okay? We want to do what God has said he wants to do. And I think that that was all that was expressed when Jesus was baptized. And of course, when Jesus was baptized, what happened? Okay, the Holy Spirit descended visibly. There was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Okay? And, you know, think about that. On that event, who's watching? Lots of people. There are big crowds there to be baptized by John. It was a very public event, wasn't it? And when God says, this is my beloved son, okay, that was a confirmation that he was the Messiah who they were seeking to identify with in baptism. So I, I suppose another thing that you could say was that by being baptized, Jesus gave God the Father and the Holy Spirit an opportunity to attest to his identity. You know, so Pat, going back to what you were saying, there is, a, there is a danger that will get the wrong idea. And in fact, many theologians have gotten the wrong idea. Remember we've talked about adoptionism? The idea that Jesus was an ordinary, sinful man who came to John the Baptist and he got baptized. And at the moment when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him from heaven, kind of like the Holy Spirit descending upon Samson. And Jesus, who was an ordinary, ordinary sinful man, was suddenly empowered to do his public ministry. But he wasn't sinless, and he wasn't God. And then the people who hold this view, which is called adoptionism, would argue that just before he went to the cross, the Spirit of God departed from him, and it was just an ordinary sinful man who died on the cross. Okay? This is an idea that's been floating around in Christian circles probably since the first century. Okay, it's a false idea. It's called adoptionism. I think it's also Serinthianism, if I'm not mistaken. Is it significant that the judge comes down and rests upon his shoulder, not in dwelling him? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, people who hold that view would probably argue that. Um, I don't know how you would sim symbolize the indwelling unless the dove flew down his throat or something like but, that. But, but, you know, what I'm, saying I'm not making fun of what you're saying. No, no. But what I'm saying is the fact that he didn't need the symbol be. of the indwelling Could be. because he was part of God. Yeah. Whereas, okay, I see what the, you're saying. The spirit coming upon Samson was the spirit of indwelling Samson. Well, we, we actually wouldn't say indwelling. Okay, there was no indwelling in the Old Testament. There was empowerment, but not indwelling. But I, I see the distinction that you're making, and it may well be significant, that this was, this was an endorsement. It wasn't a transformation, I think is what you're saying. And, and that's, that's a good point to make. I mean, we would understand it that way, would we not? Christ was already the divine 
Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he did not need the Spirit to indwell him in order to be imbued with divine power. He already had it. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, that's my stab at explaining the baptism of Christ. Okay, and this is, you know, this is not unique or anything. But give that some thought. I think it's helpful. Um, and we'll move on. Okay, now I want to touch on this topic of the teaching and preaching of Christ. It's enormous. Okay, we can't possibly go through it in a course like this. I do want to discuss the kind of teaching he did, some of the things that he spoke about, but it's going to be very schematic, it's going to be very quick. I hope you'll find this useful. The first thing that we notice about his teaching is that it wasn't like the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, what did they say? They said, this man does not teach like the scribes and Pharisees, he teaches with authority. Okay? They spoke after God. You might even say they spoke for God, but Jesus spoke as God. Okay? The fact that he was a prophet, that is, the fact that his messages were true and authoritative was validated in several ways. Okay? First one is, he made predictions that came true. Can you think of any of the predictions that he made that came true? It, it's interesting. There are a few. They're not. They're not a lot of them. What's that? Okay. He predicted that he would die. He predict, predicted that he would rise from the dead. That's the biggest one, Brooks. Destruction. Okay. He did do that. Interestingly, that one as a validation of the fact that he was a prophet didn't do any good during his lifetime, did it? There were a couple others. While he was alive. Okay? I mean, it's surprising how hard they are to find. He told Peter, go fishing, open the fish's mouth, and there will be a coin in it. Okay? Say again? Okay, he predicted he, that's good. He predicted the betrayal of Judas. Okay, and that happened during his life. Telling him where the coming of the Holy Spirit happened after he was gone. Telling him where to cast the net. Yes. Okay, that happened after his resurrection. That's right. Those are the ones that I. Oh, there's one more. Well, that's that's an interesting one, Don. Was that a prediction, or had he arranged it? It's kind of like the one, go into the city and you'll find a man carrying three water pots and go up to him and say, you know, where, where should we eat the supper? I'm inclined to think that he arranged those rather than being, them being, you know, miraculous. It, it's hard to prove that they're miraculous. The other one that comes to mind is the crowing of the rooster after Peter's denials. Okay? But there are not a whole lot of them. It's surprising as far as predictions that came true. Well, he didn't make any predictions that didn't come true. But don't let me say that the wrong way. Okay. He performed miracles. Now, the list of those is endless, isn't it? I mean, you know, we could go on all night. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Now, the third thing that he did is that he taught, and what he taught was in agreement with what had already been revealed in the scriptures. Now, I think we may have done this in here. Did we look at Deuteronomy 13, where it says that if somebody comes to you and he makes a prediction about the future, or he offers you a sign, and the thing happens as he said it would, but if he tells you to go after other gods, don't listen to him? You remember that passage? It's in Deuteronomy 13, the very first few verses. Let, let's read that. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder of which he spoke to you comes to pass, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, 
you shall not listen to that to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul now taking this and analyzing it a little bit I would argue that what that is teaching is that a necessary quality of a true prophet is that what he teaches must be consistent with what God has already revealed about himself. Okay, this is how scripture kind of works as building blocks. And ultimately, this is the foundation of the doctrine of the analogy of scripture. Remember, we talked about that, how scripture interprets scripture. The reason that works is because God doesn't contradict himself. And what he reveals early will be consistent with what he reveals late. And if a prophet shows up and says, uh-uh, you know, what the earlier prophet said was wrong, you know that that prophet is a false prophet. Now what's challenging about this is when we think about the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? He took the law to his logical extension. Okay, I agree with that statement, but let me throw out another, let me throw out, a, let me be the devil's advocate. He said that the Old Testament was wrong. He said that the Old Testament was okay as long as you didn't commit adultery. It was okay to lust in your heart. No. <laughs> well, I, I don't even think he raised it to a higher standard. Personally, what I think he did was he took the inadequate interpretation of the law that was common in the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees and exposed that as inadequate. Okay? But someone might come along and say, oh no, Jesus changed the rules. Now, I don't think he changed the rules. I think he interpreted what had already been revealed correctly. And in addition, he revealed new stuff, right? There's lots of new stuff in Jesus' teaching that wasn't found in the Old Testament. But everything that's new is consistent with what was already revealed. He never contradicted or denied the truth of anything that had already been said. Well, he did say one thing. That, okay. Like when Moses was talking about how you can give a certificate of divorce. Oh, no. He didn't contradict Moses. No, he didn't contradict him, but I'm just saying, well, he said that that Moses permitted that because of their the hardness of their hearts. Okay. So True. I'm just saying, you know, what, what he said, you know, that's true. What he's doing is he's explaining why God allowed that provision. But again, it's more of an explanation. It's not really a contradiction. But, but you're right. See, people might throw this back at us and say it is a contradiction. And we need to think about it clearly enough so that we can say, no, it's not a contradiction. It's an explanation. Okay? And that's kind of what I'm forcing you guys to do, what you're doing, which is perfect. Okay? That's why we're doing this. <coughs> Okay, the last thing that he did, or, or the last thing that validates him as a prophet, is the people looked at him and they said, this guy is a prophet. And it was not easy to convince large groups of people, particularly when he was there day after day for a number of years. You know, I mean, Jean Dixon, those of us who are old enough to remember her, you know, in the 60s, people were convinced that she was a prophet. And then she started flubbing up, right? And everybody just began to ignore her for good reason. Okay. Now, this is important. The teachings of Jesus are one of the hardest parts of the Bible to interpret. Okay? This is due to several factors. At times, he designed his teaching to be difficult to understand. Okay? Okay? He said, I speak to them in parables so that seeing they may not perceive and hearing they may not understand. Okay, one of the purposes of parables was to hide the truth from those who had not been given spiritual discernment by God. But at the same time, it did reveal the truth to those who had been given discernment. And in some cases, that discernment didn't come until he was gone. Remember the places where it would say, Jesus said this, and after he rose from the, 
from the dead, his disciples remembered it. You tie that in with John uh, 16 and 17, where Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind these things and will help you to understand them. Okay? So one of the reasons his teaching was difficult to understand was that he meant it to be that way. Okay? Second reason is that Jesus lived under the Mosaic Law, but he taught of life in two coming dispensations. The time of the church and the time of the millennial kingdom. And one of the reasons why we get confused over the some of the things that he teaches is we are not clear which of these time periods the teaching is appropriate for. Okay? Now, some dispute remains. You know, there are some people who are convinced that the Sermon on the Mount is for the future millennial kingdom. I don't think so. I personally think that the Sermon on the Mount is basically trans-dispensational, but it's a demonstration of the proper interpretation and application of Scripture, of the Old Testament law. But he told things that had to do with the church, and he spoke of things that have to do with the millennium, particularly prophecy. Okay? This is one of the things that can make it difficult to understand him. And he ministered at a time of transition. Now think of the transitions that were going on during his ministry and as a result of his ministry. There was a transition from Israel as the focus of God's work to the church being the focus of God's work. There was a transition from law to grace. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that grace wasn't at work in the Old Testament. Okay, but there is a transition, in a sense, in the way that God is working. There is a transition from centripetal to centrifugal. We don't use those words very much, okay? Centripetal means running to the center. In the Old Testament, God's way of revealing himself was through the nation of Israel, and in particular, through the temple, through what went on in the temple, and if people wanted to know about God, what did they have to do? They had to come to Jerusalem, right? Now, after the ministry of Christ, what happens? God takes believers who now, interestingly, are the what of God? We're the, well, we are the temple, aren't we? And he takes temples and he throws them all over the world, you know? Acts chapter 8, the persecution of of, uh, of Saul starts after the stoning of Stephen and what do the believers do? They go everywhere. Okay? So, in the Old Testament it was coming toward the center to know about God. In the New Testament God flings believers out all over the world. It's kind of an interesting transition. In the Old Testament God spoke through the prophets. In the New Testament God speaks primarily through Christ himself. Now the New Testament I I wouldn't I wouldn't classify the New Testament writers as prophets in the way that Old Testament writers were prophets. I tend to think of the New Testament writers as spokesmen commenting upon and elucidating what Jesus said and what he did both in the past and what he's going to do in the future. You know, yes, the New Testament writers are prophets in the sense that they're spokesmen for God, but mostly what they did is they reflect reflect upon Christ's ministry and its significance for our lives. So you, you can see that there are a lot of transitions, and I think one of the things that makes the teaching of Jesus difficult to understand at times is the nature of these transitions. A perfect example is Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom. Okay? Those are interesting and they're difficult to understand and nobody has come to a uniform understanding of them yet. I think the time will come when we will look back and we'll say, how could I have been wrong about that? Because if we will have additional information in the future that will clarify their meanings. I mean, I think I know basically what they talk about. But I think one of the reasons that it's difficult to understand is that there was something going on with regard to the kingdom. There are all these transitions going on 
during his ministry and as a result of his ministry. Okay? Something to think about. Any questions? Okay. Let's push on. Oh, this stuff always takes longer than I want it to. Okay. This this is this is going to be quick. I would categorize the teachings of Jesus in nine categories, and I just tried to put everything that I could think that he taught of into one of these categories. He taught he spoke of the true nature of God's call to holy living. SOM is the Sermon on the Mount. That's not the only place he did it. He talked about the availability of and the means of entering the kingdom, whatever the kingdom is. And we'll talk about that someday. He spoke of his own identity as prophet, priest, and king. He spoke of his coming death, burial, and resurrection. He spoke of salvation by faith in himself. He spoke a lot about events surrounding his future second coming. He spoke about the mission of those he would leave behind. He spoke about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he spoke of life in the assembly of believers. I probably probably missed something, but I think almost everything that he spoke about fits into one of those categories. Okay? And you can see that it encompasses a lot, doesn't it? He was preparing for the church. He was explaining salvation. Um, he was talking about his future ministry. Um, what people, sh you know, what believers should do after he was gone until he comes back. There's a lot there. Okay, next slide. <coughs> All right, some fundamental questions regarding his teaching. Now I'm going to throw these out here, and we are not going to answer these tonight. Okay, this is kind of a teaser for the next term. What was the nature of the kingdom of which Jesus spoke? Highly debated issue. Okay, we will talk about that next term. What did repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand mean? I've already told you what I thought what I think it means, but there's a lot more to talk about there. Okay? Did Christ offer himself as the Davidic king to Israel? I think he did. Some people think he didn't. Okay, we'll talk about that next term. Is the kingdom now present or is it future? Now, it's interesting to me, we'll have people stand up in church and they will say, Lord, we want to do this, you know, to, um, to build your kingdom. And when they say that, I'm thinking to myself, no, no, no. I don't say it out loud because I don't think his kingdom is present. I think his kingdom is entirely future. But there are lots of godly people, probably the majority of Christians in the world, who think that his kingdom is present. Okay? Interesting question. We'll talk about that in the future. Here's a good one. How do the offices of prophet, priest, and king relate to Christ's earthly life during his first coming? Okay, we'll talk about that when we get to our course on eschatology. Okay, let's go until quarter of because we started so late, and then we'll have a break from quarter of till five of. Is that all right with you? Okay. Let's talk about his miracles, and this again is going to be pretty quick. The realms of Christ's miracle covered the only two realms that exist, right? The physical realm and the spiritual realm. Name some of his physical miracles. Okay, raising from the dead. Okay, giving sight to the blind. Calming the sea. Turning water to wine. Um, how about some of his spiritual miracles? Okay, now that's an interesting one that you mentioned. I agree. Bestowing forgiveness, I agree, is a miracle. It's interesting, though. It was a totally invisible miracle. And when Jesus did it, he would generally accompany it by a physical miracle to demonstrate that he had the authority to do the invisible miracle of forgiveness, right? Remember him saying... You know, he heals the guy with a withered hand, and the skeptics are looking at him saying, who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus says, that you may know that I have authority to forgive sin. Oh, I got it backwards. 
I got it backwards. No, he pronounces the guy forgiven. And then they say, you can't do that. And he says, that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins. Pick up your mat, mat and walk or stretch out your hand or whatever it might be. Okay? So he would validate the invisible miracle in the spiritual realm by a visible, physical miracle. Okay. Except the biggest miracle he ever performed, which was... Come back to life. Yeah. Good, good. I mean, you know, we don't tend to think of it that way. But when he says to the thief, you're forgiven, you know, that, that's really easy to say. But three hours later, he's dead, but then three days later, he's alive. Would the, uh, the incident with the prostitute and the crowds be considered a spiritual miracle? Um, I'm not sure which one you're referring to. Where he, uh, the woman is brought to him as a prostitute, hot in the act, and okay. something in the dirt. Yeah, yeah. May, may, I mean, he may have been demonstrating his knowledge of what was in people's minds. It's interesting that you bring that one up, because I was just thinking of the general category of knowing what's going through people's heads. Yeah, where he talks where he... You know, how many times... He comes out and tells the Pharisees what they're exactly. in their hearts. Exactly. How about a more concrete miracle in the spiritual realm. Nobody's mentioned it yet, but it was quite common in his ministry. Casting out demons. Casting out demons. Okay? So we can see his power in both realms. Okay, let's talk about the purpose of his miracles. Now here I'm going to throw up three different views. Like a good teacher, I always give the wrong one first. Okay? The third wave. John Wimber and his friends. They argue that the purpose of miracles in the ministry of Jesus was to make evangelism effective. And they make a conclusion from that that in order for us to make evangelism effective, we must do miracles. They have a whole theology built on this. Now this is kind of old hat now. How do we evaluate this? We evaluate this by... Well, right. In, in Luke 16, at the end of that, this, that, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Abraham says, if they, do, they have Moses and the prophets, if they do not believe that, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Okay? There are lots of people who saw his miracles and didn't believe. Because they didn't want to believe. Okay? So this idea, I think, is flawed. Okay? I don't think that that was really the primary purpose of miracles. Now, I'm not suggesting that nobody believed as a result of the miracles. I'm not saying that, okay? But I am saying that it's not the primary purpose. Now, the health and wealth gospel view today is that the purpose of miracles is to meet the needs of his followers. I need a miracle. Bring my stock market portfolio up. You know, make this leg equal to the length of the other one. I'd like to meet one of those guys, by the way, because my left leg is that much shorter than the other one. It really is. <laughs> okay. Uh, evaluation of this. Christ condemned those who sought his miracles for the benefit alone. He said, you just want to make me king because I can turn three fish into enough to feed a crowd of 5,000. And secondly, he left a lot of people un healed and unhelped, didn't he? Even the apostles did. Right? Just by the very nature of Christ at that time is finite. He didn't set up a conveyor belt, you know, go healed, 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 healed. He only did it at certain times and apparently for other purposes than just to meet the needs of people. I think the biblical view, the correct view, is that he did miracles to attest to his identity as the Messiah. And I would base that on Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter, in his speech on the day of Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, 
by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. Okay? What did he say? Jesus was attested to you. Okay? God was telling you through the miracles that Jesus of Nazareth was the person he said he was. Okay? It's an authentication of his person. Now, I'm not denying that at times he met the needs of people. I'm not denying that at times his miracles did bring people to faith or push them over the hump that they needed to go over. But when we think about the purpose of miracles in his life, I think this is really where the heart is. And I think that we're in danger if we take either one of these two and say that we should be doing miracles to accomplish those things. First of all, I don't know how to do miracles. And secondly, I don't think that you have to do miracles to be effective in evangelism. And I don't think that God intends us to have our needs met by miracles on a regular basis. If he does it, praise God. And occasionally he does, but I don't think it's intended for a regular basis. Okay. Do you think that like the gospel, the gospel of John says that these were written that you might believe that Jesus is Christ? Is sure. More the second view or the combination of the first and second? Oh, I, I think it's this one, okay? But remember, John isn't really saying that Jesus did the miracles for the primary purpose of bringing people to faith. He's saying that the record of the miracles is given to bring those who never saw him in the flesh to faith. Now, again, though, you're pointing out something important. It would be wrong to deny this. This is part of what he was doing. Okay? But really, this and this go together, don't they? Okay? By attesting to the identity of Christ through miracles, God is working to make evangelism effective. But miracles by themselves are not the key to evangelism. That's what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Okay, let's, let's take our break.